Good morning again. If you're just joining us online or if you just walked in, I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could be here this morning. Before we get to today's message, let's go to our Father in Heaven, asking for wisdom and uh, discernment um, and attentiveness this morning. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the word that is before us. We come humbly, Father, and if we don't, please humble us and help us to recognize um, the opportunity that is before us. So help us turn our ears and our eyes to what is to be said this morning. May the Spirit convict, teach us, edify us, lead us in repentance so that you can be glorified in all things, Father. Um, We ask this, Father, for your glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So um, I'm going to start this morning um, on a soapbox. And, you know, that might not be new to some of you who know me. Um, I do enjoy my soapboxes. But I do want you to know that before I go on this soapbox, I do love you. Um, Please understand that. Um, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a popular verse, right? 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, I know for some of you, this is perhaps even a favorite verse. Um, and I've seen it often, uh, whether it be on social, well, I've seen it, yeah, just primarily on social media, and you'll see it in people's yards, a little sign that says 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And it's well intended. But let's look at the context here. Starting in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles uh, 7 through 16, and we, we have to understand here, uh, this is taking place after Solomon's temple. It gets completed. It's finished. They spend a week celebrating it. Solomon does a huge dedication uh, ceremony for it, does a huge prayer. And then we find ourselves in chapter 7. So we're starting verse 11 through 16. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in, in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, that's the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. All right, so he's talking about covenant judgment, covenant discipline for when the nation is covenantly unfaithful. If my people, that is the nation of Israel, the covenant people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the land of Israel. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. That place, again, is the temple, not our homes, but the temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, the temple, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now, so, I'll just get to the point here. Second Chronicles 7.14 is not and cannot be about us. All right? When I speak about Jeremiah 29.11, it's the same thing. Second Chronicles 7.14, even more so. In no way can it be applied to America, because it was a promise given under the Old Covenant. No Old Covenant promise right now in all of the world is in play, because the Old Covenant is no longer. We're under the New Covenant. So, Second Chronicles 7.14, when we use that, honestly, it's empty words, 
because we're misapplying scripture. You can't just, all scripture is useful for teaching, yes, and correcting, and for training in righteousness. But that doesn't, we got to make sure that we use it rightly. Like all organs of the body are useful for the body if the organ is used properly. I can't use the liver to be the heart. It doesn't work that way. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 is still useful. But not the way that we often use it for. It cannot and does not apply to America. It applies to a nation that is in a covenant with God. We are not in a covenant with God. As much as we might be under God, we are not in a covenant with God as a nation. Plus, we don't have a temple like Solomon's temple that dwells in America. We have our bodies, which are the temple. We have the church, but that's new covenant. Now, again, though, 2 Chronicles 7.14, though, does, it, because it is useful for teaching, it does have some principles. It has some key things that we desire for America, right? We desire repentance and so forth. But again, it's rooted in the promise of healing the land. It's rooted in the old covenant. If we want something like that, let me give you a new covenant passage that you can use. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, where Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a good new covenant passage that we would like to use for our country. We want a life that is peaceful and quiet. And we want America to repent, but not on the promise of the healing of the land, not under the old covenant promise. If if we're going to use scripture rightly, use a new covenant passage. Now I say this because we're sharing 2 Chronicles 7.14 because we recognize America's in need of revival. It is in need of renewal. But we have to understand, again, like we talked about in 1 Samuel 1, oftentimes before renewal is judgment. And oftentimes before renewal, if, if we're seeking, we, we share Second Chronicles 7.14 as if, if, if America repents, there won't be any judgment and we'll just have blessing and prosperity. But in reality, under the new covenant, more than likely what's going to happen is if there's going to be a revival or renewal, there's going to be some form of judgment. There's going to be some, some form of pain, some form of uh, maybe even persecution, something uh, that is going to increase the heat, so to speak, to purify uh, God's people. Um, so we got to be mindful of that. And so based off of this desire for America to have a revival, we have to ask ourselves, how will this happen? By what means will this revival travel and be empowered? Will it come through our communities, through social reform and uh, perhaps social justice, as some people advocate for? Will it come through our schools? Where if we reform our public education system, will that fix the issue? Will it come from our governments, our state government perhaps? Or will it come through the White House if we get just the right president who has the right character, who is pro-life, pro-Israel, pro-Christian, that will fix the problem. And if we get enough of those people in Congress, that again will fix America. In fact, it will help us to go back to the way that America was, as if whatever going back to is the best thing that's ever happened to America rather than just going forward. So where should we look? Where should we as the church look? Where should we 
place our trust in this matter. Well, that leads us to our passage today, which is 1 Samuel 8. And it's just one chapter, and I know last week we did four chapters, and if you think today is going to be a shorter sermon, it might be. It just depends on how many soapboxes I get on during the, t- during the time we have before us. Now, we get to read about a nation that's looking for a revival. That's how 1 Samuel starts out, right? It starts with Hannah, who's looking, who has a barren womb, looking to have a child, who in her prayer is looking for God to turn things upside down and to restore his people and to have a revival, a renewal of sorts. So we get to read about this nation looking for that. And they're looking for deliverance from the Philistines. Despite already having what they needed... They desired something else. Remember what we talked about last week, the battles, right? They lost to the Philistines, the ark gets captured, the ark returns. Uh, they suffer because they're, they're idolatrous, they're unfaithful. God judges them for that. The Philistines come again after 20 years. Uh, they have the battle um, with the Philistines. God delivers them because they repented and they trusted in God. Well, now some time has passed, and apparently they've kind of forgotten about that, and they, they want more. They want something perhaps more tangible, uh, perhaps uh, something that is perceived as easier than trusting in God. So we're going to read chapter 8, and if you need a Bible, we have them in the back. If you grab one, you have made it a gift to yourself, and you own it. So we're going to read chapter 8, then we're going to discuss why the Israelites wanted a king, and why they don't need a king, and then we're going to talk about the implications for us today. So 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaken me. And serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. 
And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So why a king? Well, the first reason is that Samuel's sons cannot be trusted. Right there, verses 2 through 5, we hear that Samuel has appointed his sons to be judges. Now, his sons didn't have to be judges. Samuel could have appointed just about anyone to be a judge. It didn't have to be his son. But he chose his son. And while Samuel is in the northern part of the country, um, in Ramah, his sons are in Beersheba in the southern parts. And they're not good judges. They're, they're corrupt. They prefer justice. They have fallen away. They're more like the sons of Eli than they should be the sons of Samuel. And this is interesting. See, Samuel is the first judge in the Bible who is a national judge. Eleven times it's mentioned that he judges all of Israel. No judge in the Bible before this time is described in that way. And if you remember the the book of Judges, the period of Judges, we have judges in different places of Israel judging at different times, sometimes at the same time as other judges, but typically in a particular area. Samuel was a national judge. And so his sons, who Samuel's old in his age, his sons aren't doing the job. They can't be trusted. They are corrupt. The people of Israel are getting fed up with it, and sometimes the apple does fall far, far from the tree. The second reason Israel wants a king is because they want to be like everyone else, verse 5. And this is a typical response of the human fallen condition. It's not easy to be different sometimes, to stick out, or to be the odd one out in the crowd. Just because you're the odd one out, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It can be, but not necessarily. In Israel, because they are depraved, wicked human beings, they desire to be like others. They want to belong. We see this even nowadays. I mean, just look at how people flock to get the latest iPhone. Why anyone would buy an iPhone nowadays when Android is far superior is beyond me. But people still do. The latest iPhone comes out and they're waiting in line. Why? Because they don't want to be left out. They want to be like everyone else. But yet, it's not just people. Churches are similar today. If a church that is perceived to be successful, they have more money or they have more people, smaller or unsuccessful churches, however you want to view it, might look at that church and go, well, what do they have that we don't? Oh, they have that program. Well, we need that program so we can be like them. Rather than trusting God, rather whether it's a wise decision or not, they want to be like everyone else. This is typical human behavior. Laura and I, when we first met, we attended a, 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 a service uh, in Colorado Springs at a big church, and there's a Sunday night service. It's a combination of ages, primarily younger people, and it was doing really well. About two years later, the church does away with it. Why? Because the mega church across the street had a particular 20-something program, and when newcomers would come to the church, they would ask, what do you have? They would look like on a card, literally like on an information card, what do you have for 20-something? And they didn't have that box to check. They just had generalities, and they wanted something very specific to get the guests, to get the seekers to really bite on. And so they changed how they did ministry, solely based off of that. And what they replaced it with, honestly, was garbage, and it, it, it was not a good decision, 
but they were trusting programs. They wanted to be like everyone else rather than trusting God. But this is the thing about trusting God. Trusting God isn't always easy. Oftentimes, it's, it's not even a tangible thing, and we like tangible things. Faith, unlike numbers, cannot be effectively quantified and measured. When we can take numbers and we can measure it, when we can see them increase, decrease, we feel better. It's almost like we're in control. We, we know what's happening. With faith, you can't do that. So Israel wants to be like the other nations. And in doing so, they want a king that judges them. Now, when we talk about a king to judge, just like a judge who judges, well, they're essentially saying we want a king to rule. To judge, in essence, is to rule. Judges, they rule on cases. So to judge is to exercise authority over them. So they want a king to judge them, to rule them, because apparently Israel, they're fed up with this theocracy that God has set up under the old covenant. Eli's sons were corrupt. Samuel was good, but Samuel's sons are corrupt. And so they want a king, a king that they know will fight for them, a king that will fight their battles in verse 20, right? They want somebody to do the hard work for them. They want somebody to be their deliverer, their savior, their protector, their solution to the problems. So they ask Samuel, for a king. But there's an issue with that, right? Obviously, I hope the issue is obvious here. We've talked about the old covenants. This is old covenant Israel. Are they called to have a king other than Yahweh? Why not a king? Because Israel has Yahweh. They have God. See, part of the old covenant, the Mosaic law of marking out Israel, is to make them not look like the other nations. Right? So like the dietary requirements of the Mosaic law. It wasn't about health. It was about other nations eat these things. You are not to eat these things. You are not to act like they are because you are my people and you are to be known as my people. So likewise, one of the, things, one of the ways they were to be known as God's people was they had no king, but Yahweh. Yahweh, God, was to be their king. But Israel is rejecting him. They are apparently fed up and they want an actual king. And when the elders come to Ramah and they tell Samuel this, Samuel's displeased. He's stung by this news. But notice how Samuel responds here. Does Samuel go off and start a new nation? Does he go off and start a new church, a new ministry? No, he goes to God, he goes to Yahweh, and he prays. And Yahweh, as he often does, he comforts Samuel, reminding him that it is God who is being rejected not Samuel in verse 7. This is encouraging for those of us, pastors and those of us in ministry, and even you all, when you share the word of God, when you share the gospel, or when you are talking to a brother or sister who's in Christ, especially of late, and you give them scripture, but yet they've never really been exposed to scripture, and then they all of a sudden don't like talking to you anymore because what you gave them was truth, but they didn't like the truth. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. And God tells Samuel that's the case here. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. In fact, this forsaking of God has been going on ever since the Exodus. God delivers them from Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea, they go to Mount Sinai, God gives them his presence, they're scared of it, they send Moses up, Moses tarries, and what does Aaron do? Takes all the gold, melts it, out comes a a calf, a golden calf, and they worship it. 
So they're forsaking God from day one, as God reminds Samuel of. So he's like, they're rejecting me. Now, let me point something out here. We constantly read about Israel returning, repenting, right? We read about it last week. Israel repented of their idolatry. They they do their offerings to God, and God delivers them. But yet, it's a cycle. It keeps happening. We have to be careful with how we view this. We should not look back at the Old Testament, those under the Old Covenant, and think, oh, that's typical behavior of a believer. We should not look at the Old Testament, those under the Old Covenant, and be like, they kept falling into sin. Therefore, we who are under the New Covenant shouldn't be surprised when we repeat the same sins. We're not the same. We are different. Old Covenant, no Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They're just fallen human beings. They have faith, Right? They can have faith, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not a new creation. You and I, we're a new creation. When Jesus says that even John the Baptist won't be greater than the least in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in part, is already here because the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you and I. When we look at the Old Testament, we, when we see them going back and saying, like, well, yeah, they don't have the Holy Spirit. But you and I, we do. So when Jesus is talking about in John that he's going to send the, the advocate, the helper, the comforter to dwell within us, his presence is going to be within us, that's big news. That's great news. The fact that we're a new creation for the Old Testament, to them, they're like, I, I don't understand that. How, how can that be? That's why Nicodemus is like, what do you mean being born again? How is that even possible? It would blow their mind. You and I, we are new creation. So when we do repent, yes, it is expected, you leave that sin behind. We might initially stumble from time to time, especially early on in our faith as we're learning to grow in faithfulness to God. We might stumble, and there might be some sins that we really struggle with, but ultimately, our our trajectory should be upward. It might be jagged, but it is ultimately upward because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And the Old Covenant, they didn't. They're going to be in circles the whole time. That's That's what it is. But God was patient and he provided a savior and a deliverer for them despite that. So just, that was a soapbox, just a little sidebar there to help us understand how we look at the behavior of the Israelites. We do not use that as an excuse for our behavior. Because again, we're new covenant. They are old covenants. So another reason, where am I here on my notes? I got to get back here. Besides all this, God knew this day was coming. This is why he gives them a king, right? In Deuteronomy 17, 14, God tells Israel that this day will come. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So God knew this was coming. So God's like, yes, they're rejecting me, Samuel, but go ahead and give it to them because, well, I knew this day was going to come. This is part of the whole grand plan. This is part of the redemptive plan. This is how, this is setting the throne, so to speak, for God's son. So God tells Samuel to obey them, but before he does, he is to solemnly warn them as to why they should not want a king in verse 9. And then Samuel goes on and tells them the king will oppress and enslave the people in verses 11 through 17. He says that the king will enslave them through taxes, tithes, and servitude. See, a centralized government, and we Americans, we should know this well, a a bureaucracy requires logistical, administrative, and military needs. 
sons and men to serve in the military, daughters and women for the hospitality services, lands to grow the food, tithes and taxes to pay for all of it. And at times the king will conscript their servants into his servants. The king will enslave them ultimately by indebting themselves to him and to the government. And this king that Israel so desperately wants will be a king that they themselves choose. That they themselves, this king will be a reflection of who they are as a nation. And as such, with depraved hearts full of idolatry and wickedness, most of the kings of Israel that they have, as we will read about in First and Second Kings, end up being wicked. Almost all of them are, are commented on as being a bad king or not doing the things that please the Lord. Very few are considered good kings. See, oftentimes the leader is a reflection of the character of the society of which he or she leads. So when we look to our president, we shouldn't be surprised by his character. We know the character of society, and as such, we have a leader that reflects it. They feed into each other. But despite this solemn warning, the people will still desire a king. And a king they shall receive, and it's a king we will talk about next week. But how does this all apply to us? What is the so what of this passage? Again, this is an old covenant nation. We have to consider that. We are under the new covenant. Well, we have to look at the fundamental issue that's at play here. And that is the issue of trust. And perhaps even some sort of perceived control into the ongoings of our lives. See, a king can be seen. A king can be touched, physically heard, physically spoken to. You can point your finger at the face of a king and say it's his fault. A king, though it might be risky, can be assassinated. A king can be motivated and urged to act a certain way. God, Yahweh, cannot. God is spirit. He is invisible. It's hard to point your finger at something that there is no image of. We can't touch God. We can't wring his neck. We can't assassinate him. We can't remove him from his throne. And and that should kind of, the fact that God is sovereign and is always sitting on his throne should kind of point out how silly and foolish the Israelites are being here. They want a king to rule over them as if God is just going to step aside and no longer be involved. God is also impassable. Passable just means that he's unmoved by emotion, that his sovereign will, what he has preordained, what he has determined to happen, will happen. He is not swayed by emotion. So I want to challenge you this morning from this text with this question. Where do you put your trust? Is it in man or is it in God? And I think this is especially significant since it's election year. Our trust ultimately is to be in God, not government. Our president is not where we place our trust, our hope, or whether some friendly pro-Israel, pro-life, pro-prayer, pro-Christian man or government gets into place. That's not where we put our trust or hope. Think of the mighty acts of God in the Bible through his people and the various governments that existed. Moses and Aaron, an oppressive government, God used them. Think of Daniel and Babylon or Nehemiah and Ezra. Those weren't pro-Christian or pro-Jew rulers. 
Think of the church of Acts and the church of the New Testament. You know, a lot of people say we need to be like the New Testament church. Okay, well, let's bring on the crucifixions, the beatings. Let's bring on the boilings of of believers alive. Let's bring that all on. You want that. Let's bring all of it. That's the context. Let's get rid of religious liberty because that is, that's the New Testament church. And we have to be careful of religious liberty. Religious liberty is a great thing. It is a blessing. And as responsible citizens, we should defend it. We should stand up for it. But with freedom comes responsibility. And if we don't respect that freedom, if we abuse that freedom, it becomes more harmful than it is good. This is why the church in America is so fat and lazy and impotent and incompetent. We have thousands of people who go to churches all across America worshiping a God they don't know and they're worshiping themselves. Why? Because they don't know scripture and they have the freedom to think what they want to think. There is no threat to actually believe in in what they claim to believe. And so they just kind of believe it with no commitment to it. There's no expectation. There's no follow-up with it. There's no consequence of it because we have religious liberty. And again, it's a good thing, right? This is 1 Timothy 2. We pray that we can have a quiet and peaceful life. But if we want revival, more than likely in America, something has to happen either with us being more responsible or religious liberty perhaps is the enemy, so to speak. And we have to get rid of it and we have to ask God, hey, purify your church with fire, with whatever it takes. So our trust is not in the government. It ultimately is in God. And when we pray for that, we have to just let God do what he does. Whether the government stands or the government falls, we trust in God. We trust in God and not the healthcare system or the medical facilities, especially, I think now is a good situation to talk about this with the pandemic. See, God is perfect. The healthcare system is not. Healthcare system can be overrun. They don't always make the best decisions. Science isn't perfect. They are fallible. As much as they are a blessing with many things, they are still fallible. God is not. He is perfect, and we can depend on him. The healthcare system fails. Fine, it fails, but we have God. We trust God, not our denomination. We are an evangelical free church of America church. We belong to a denomination, but our denomination ultimately does not dictate what we do. God's word does. We trust in that. If the denomination goes left, goes progressive, starts disobeying the word of God, we leave the denomination. Our trust is in God, not the EFCA. Now, let me just say I appreciate the EFCA. I'm thankful for what the district does, especially uh, in supporting their pastors. But again, trust ultimately is in God and in his word not them. We trust God, not pastors, and not popular Bible teachers. Just because a Bible teacher says one thing, and this is, this is where most of the church is, well, rather than saying what scripture says, well, Tim Keller, whoever says this, Beth Moore says this, um, Francis Chan says this, well, what does scripture say? I hope that whatever you learn from Sunday mornings, it's not so much, well, my pastor says this. I hope you come away with That is what God's word says. And when you have a conversation, you can be like, well, God's word says this because you trust it and you trust God. So we trust in God, not in pastors, not in popular or celebrity Bible teachers and preachers. We trust in God, not our tribe. Whether you're Reformed, Calvinistic, Arminian, for some of you, this is just going over your head. And you know what? That's a blessing. But sometimes there are people in the body who are like, well, I'm a Calvinist. 
So this is what I believe. Well, what does scripture say? Our trust is in that, not in this movement that we're a part of. Our trust is in God, not traditions, programs, the way that things have always been. We are willing to let go of traditions. We're willing to sacrifice them. Um, This is why we do communion weekly. Why? Because we feel like that's what God commands. Not because it's a tradition. Now, we got to be careful here. Doing communion weekly, one day, it's going to become a tradition. But we're going to be confident in it because it's one that's in, in the Bible. It's prescribed. So we don't trust in how we do things. We trust that it's God who builds the church, not so much our programs. When our trust is in the right place, it impacts our focus and our behavior, especially in the midst of election year. Now, we are called to be good stewards and good citizens. We are to be active. We should voice our opinion. We should seek to uh, have righteous decrees passed. We should seek to have righteous people put into office. And we should seek to have a godly man, if there's one available, to go into the office and to vote for the one we think is best for our country. But ultimately, our hope is not in them. We don't go through the election saying, oh boy, if we vote for this guy, it's going to fix everything. God, once God gets the right man in the office, then God can do what he wants to do. That's not how God works. He's sovereign. The, the right man for God could be the man you don't want to vote for because that man or woman might be put into the office and then all of a sudden what he or she or they pass is what purifies the church and causes renewal, causes revival. And we have to be because we're asking for it. We're asking for a revival. We have to be okay with that. We have to be okay that the church might grow best when the land's not healed, but when the land is struck by the arm of God and there is pestilence among it and there is devastation, whether it's moral devastation or economic or whatever, we have to be okay with that. And we can be because we trust God. We don't want to be like the Israelites thinking we just need the right king. We just need to be like the other nations and then will be okay. We need to trust God. We need to make sure that our lives are marked more by our faith in a particular, excuse me, our lives are marked more by our faith in Christ rather than a particular political party. It's okay to be known as a Republican, but if that's all you're known as and not a Christian, that's an issue. The next candidate is going to disappoint. Whoever becomes president, whoever becomes governor, is going to disappoint, even if it's the person you vote for. Donald Trump hasn't disappointed you yet by now. I would like to have a cup of coffee with you and pick your brain on that. But even if Trump gets a second term, he's going to disappoint. He's human. I am going to disappoint you. Regardless of what you think, if I haven't disappointed you yet, especially this morning, Second Chronicles 7.14, I'm going to disappoint you at some point. I'm human. It's, it's, it's going to happen. And praise God, it's not dependent on me or how I act. It would drive me crazy. It's hard enough knowing that and not driving me crazy. Christ in his word is the answer to the problems of this world. It's not America. We are not a covenant nation. We can talk about how it's one nation under God all we want. That doesn't make it a covenant. That's not, God didn't say, oh, well, that sounds like a great deal, America. You're my people now. Whenever we talk about Israel, America, you're it. No one else is, just you. No, it's not, that's not how it works. And it's not the government of America 
that's going to solve the problems. God will use America as he wishes. And sometimes it will be to solve particular problems. We are instruments. All of us are. The wicked and the righteous are instruments to his divine will. It's not the president. And religious liberty especially will not solve our problems. Christ alone is the solution. In the new covenant, we've been talking about the old covenant. In the new covenant, God, our king, Jesus Christ, he's the one who builds the churches. He is the one who causes the revivals. He is the one who delivers us from death. He's the one who, if if COVID-19 comes, takes us home, Jesus Christ is going to be there. Healthcare system might not be there, but Jesus Christ will be. This is the king who sent his spirit to dwell among us, making us his temple, so that when we do pray, he does hear us. And he does this so he can dwell with us forever for eternity. So again, going back to 2 Chronicles 7.14, there's no need for that promise. In fact, that promise, compared to the promise of the new covenant, it's less. It's, it's, it's not sufficient. It's, it's all about this world, about healing this land. We, I don't care about this land. I want eternal life. I want the new earth. I want the new heaven, which has been given to us through the new covenant. This world needs to pass away because it's full of sin. Even if God were to heal it, ultimately it would just get ruined again. And so the promise of the new covenant is what we celebrate because we are his people He is already with us. He doesn't need to return to his church because he's already already here. He's in you. He's in me. And he has sealed us for eternity. It's not like the old covenant where if you disobey enough, the spirit leaves the temple. No. In the new covenant, when the spirit dwells you, it's forever. That's the good news. This is what we seek to proclaim. And this is what we celebrate with communion, which is a sign of the new covenant, an act that we do as a church, reminding us of this promise from God that we, we are his. Regardless of where America goes in the future, we are his. And that should give us peace, joy. That should deliver us from any anxiety or worry that we have about what's going on. Because honestly, if we take God out of the picture, boy, there's a lot of things to be concerned about, right? But boy, with God and the good news in the picture, it's like, okay, yeah, this is normal. This is... This is human depravity. Scripture talks about this. No big deal. He's coming. I'm going to die sooner or later anyway. And when I do, he's going to be there. We are his for his eternity because our sins have been forgiven. Not because we voted Republican. Not because some decree or legislature was passed in the government. But simply because the blood of Christ was shed on the cross 2,000 years ago. And it's that that we rejoice in. It is that, that's the news we want to share. That's what we want to communicate to our brothers and sisters and to those who are lost in America. We want them to know that more than anything. So as often as you have shared Second Chronicles 7.14, I pray that you will share the gospel 10 times more than that. Because the gospel, honestly, is not in Second Chronicles 7.14. The old covenant is, the Mosaic law is, and we know the law is not sufficient. It wasn't. If it was, Jesus Christ never would have, the Son of God never would have taken off flesh and died on the cross in humiliation for our sins. So praise God that he did. Praise the good news. Then let's share the good news. And that's all I have to say for this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy. 
Grace, thank you for your patience with us and, and your steadfast love. We, though we are redeemed, we still sin, we still struggle, Father, but your spirit dwells within us. Your son has given us the new covenant, a covenant that is made by his blood. And we, we thank you for that, Father. We thank you that you are a good and just God. Justice is lacking in the land. It always has been and always will be. The justice that you cry, cry out for us to have, as much as we strive for it, Father, we will never be able to have it in a way that pleases you fully. So we desperately and anxiously await the return of your Son to restore all of creation to its rightful place and its rightful way of things. Help us to put our trust in you, not in our government, but help us to be good citizens at the same time. Help us to be actively involved. It's not that we want to abandon our government, but our peace, our joy, our security ultimately does not come from them. It comes from you. Help us be ready to accept whatever you have in store for America and for our communities. And in the midst of those days, help us be the light and the salt that edifies the church that guides the lost to the light, not away from it. Help us to humble ourselves to where whatever our political passions might be, our political opinions are, that they take a seat to the gospel. It's not that we hide them, but we don't allow them to block the good news. Help us to be faithful in that walk. May the comforter, the advocate, the counselor, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, Give us that courage and a temperament, Father. Help us be slow to anger. Give us a good temperament that is seen by others and and respected by others where people will listen to us and we're slow to speak so that your spirit can guide our words and we're not talking and tripping it up, but allow the spirit to speak through us so that we can be the light and the salt. Be with us at our workplaces, Father. There's a lot going on. Whether we wear masks, don't wear masks, there's a lot of tension out there, a lot of opinions. Help us to be peacekeepers in the midst of all this. Not compromising on the truth, to speak the truth, but to do so in a way that's loving and gracious and serving to others. Recognizing that your son has served us first. Help us not forget that, Father. And we're going to partake of communion here in a moment. Father, we ask that you bless the elements here, the juice and the bread that we're about to consume. We ask that the Spirit will convict our hearts, bring to light any sins that we are ignorant of, that you will humble ourselves before you. We are a sinful people and we seek forgiveness. We seek forgiveness every day, Father. We are unworthy to come to this table. But by the grace, by the blessing, and the invitation of your Son, by the presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, Father, we can come. So help us come this morning, Father, with clean hearts, clean consciences before you, recognizing that despite what this week might have brought in us, despite the trips and the stumbling that we might have done, you forgive us. Your wisdom is there to be given to us generously, Father. We just ask you of it. Help us remember the promises of the new covenants that you have given us in your word. Help us to rightly understand your word in a way that's edifying and glorifying to you. Be with those members of of hope that are unable to be here this morning or unable to partake of communion. 
Comfort them, strengthen them. Help us reach out to them. Help us call them, Father. We long for them to return, but we want them to do it when it's good for their health and and them being respectful to their own bodies, their own temples. Help us be patient in that process. And Father, we just ask that you will continue to bring joy into our lives as we serve you and we grow in the image of your son and whatever pain that might lie ahead, that we won't do it alone. We do it first and foremost with you, but we, do it for, we also do it with one another. I thank you for the body here. I thank you for your church all across the globe. Be with our brothers and sisters who are in persecution right now who don't have religious liberty and who are suffering because of it. May they be faithful to the last breath, Father. May you be with them and may we honor them as we live in a way that glorifies you and honors them in a society that does have religious liberty. We thank you for all things, Father. We seek to glorify you in all things. And we ask this, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.